This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, November 7th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. We are one day out from a very important midterm election. We are so glad that you are listening here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. You can catch our podcast. It's free when the show is over every day. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the content is right there, including that free podcast. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter and Instagram. A new broadcast week here on the program. Programming note, unrelated to the radio side, I'll be on Gutfeld tonight. Fox News Channel, 11 p.m. Eastern. Should be fun. It always is. But the night before the elections, I would imagine Greg is going to be in rare form. So tune in for that, 11 p.m. Eastern, FNC. Here's the lineup that we have on the radio show for you today. We'll get to our first guest here in studio in a moment. In the next hour, Ted Budd running for Senate in North Carolina. He's a sitting congressman. He wants that next position. Looks like he's in decent shape, but we want to check in with him, get a vibe check with Ted Budd coming up in the next hour. And then in our final hour, Mike Rowe will be here talking about his show on Fox Business Network, about the nature of work, about working people and these midterm elections. Looking forward to that conversation, plus a special guest at the very tail end of the show. I'll give you a clue. She's a friend of the program. We're going to be talking about the weather. I think it's pretty obvious, actually. But let's get started with Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News, and a rare treat to have Britt in studio in New York. Britt, I saw you on Outnumbered earlier on the news channel, and you were commenting about the olfactory experience that is being here in New York City. First of all, it's great to see you. And and to see you, Guy. Thank you. Great to be in the same room with you. Absolutely. We've done it by phone for the last couple of years oh, here. Oh, exactly. COVID and everything, but you're up for, obviously, the special coverage tomorrow night. Correct. Election coverage with the whole crew. I know you guys were rehearsing yesterday in the big studio. Uh, I'll be part of the coverage from D.C. You'll be a featured part of the coverage. Let's just dive right in. You've covered a lot of election cycles You're looking at the polling. You're hearing the chatter. There are the so-called fundamentals that you can look at each year. What is your overall instinct about what's going to happen tomorrow? Well, I would say that the fundamentals that you just cited that form the landscape are about as unfavorable for an incumbent party uh, and president as I can remember. However, there's an issue for – this pertains to the Senate – which is what everybody's worried about. The House seems almost certain to go Republican by either a large margin or a smaller one. The Senate is up uh, for grabs, it seems. If you believe the polling, it's a whole series of close races will decide it. So why why do we care so much? And why and why is it why is you know why is a big Republican year? Why aren't why isn't the Senate guaranteed? It's because this is something we've known all along, but sometimes gets lost. Twenty one Republican seats are being defended tomorrow 
14 Democratic seats. So the opportunities for Republican pickups, of which they need a few to get control, are fewer. And on top of that is the fact that some of the Republican nominees, several of them chosen by Donald Trump, endorsed by Donald Trump, and backed by Donald Trump, uh, don't look to be as strong a candidate as the ones they were running against. So they may well win. You know, they're not terrible. But the races are closer than you would think they would be in a year like this. So it's it's it appears to be out there still. We don't know. Yeah, I'm definitely a nerd when it comes to Senate races in particular. I think that they have outsized importance just because people elected serve for six years. Composition of the Senate matters in terms of a whole lot of things, including, you know, the Democrats are maybe a vote, two votes, three votes away from doing some pretty radical stuff in the Senate. And, of course, control of committees, all of that matters a lot. If the Republicans have the House, which I think the conventional wisdom suggests that they will for the next couple of years, that stops for the most part the Biden legislative agenda, but not judges and other things. Who controls the Senate could really shift the way the back end of the Biden administration looks. Yeah, it does. And, and you know, it's not just judges, Guy. You know, it's administrative appointments. Right. It's regulatory body appointments and all those things that – that if the Republicans control the place, they might be able to get Biden to make less radical nominations or, or, or more moderate nominations. Um, so it does matter to beat hell about the Senate. And we found out in no uncertain terms after 2020 when those two Georgia Senate races were lost to the Democrats that would have given the Republicans a majority, just how much it matters whether you have both houses or of Congress. And and then came $1.9 trillion in spending added on to all the millions and billions that had already been spent on COVID relief. That manifestly added to the inflationary pressure that has given us the situation we have now. That's just one example of how much it matters, who controls. Yeah, and it's an undeniable fact, right? Those trillions do not get spent if the Republicans don't get swept in those Georgia specials. And not only that, everything I'm reading tells me that a lot of that money that was funneled out to people during COVID is still in their pockets, awaiting to be spent. Spending remains pretty vigorous, pretty strong. The Fed's trying to cool the economy down to curb the inflation. It's having trouble doing so, precisely because people are still flush. Um, and, you know, it's hard to get people to work. You see this everywhere. Jobs open everywhere. This is a problem. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I'll indulge it for just one more moment because I think it's important to remember you and I just marinate in this stuff constantly. So we know. But a lot of folks maybe forget or it's been a while since they were in civics class or maybe they were never in civics class. The whole House of Representatives is up every two years, right. every single time. Only one-third of the Senate is up every two years. Correct. So the current class, as you noted, the map is more challenging for the Republicans. Bear with me. Fast forward two years. The 2024 Senate class, the one-third of the Senate up next time, that map looks really tough for the Democrats and right. really favorable for the Republicans. That's why I think these midterms actually matter even more, because if the Republicans can make serious gains this cycle, then in a presidential year with a very favorable map two years from now, then things start getting pretty interesting. I feel like maybe some Democrats might be shifting their positions on things like the filibuster awfully soon. Yeah, some of them might even shift parties. (laughs) Well, that's another interesting one, right? If the Republicans win the majority back and a certain West Virginia Democrat is looking at maybe political extinction in two years, maybe he starts to look across the aisle and, and start to wonder, That assumes, though, that what the prognosticators and the experts are saying is broadly correct about the cycle. 
it's hard to discount the national polling, this race-by-race polling, the fundamentals. But, you know, the warning that I keep offering to Republican voters or conservatives, Britt, is even though you would think something of a red wave is starting to crest and we're going to see it crash down tomorrow, that doesn't happen by accident. People actually have to go and do the voting. They can't just say, okay, it's in the bag. Turnout is going to be enormous. Democrats have built blue wall advantages in a number of important states with this early voting. It's going to take big, big red turnout tomorrow to overcome it. I think it's totally doable, but not if people think it's over. Yeah, and looking ahead, when when Biden's presidency turned out to be more leftist than anybody might have imagined, although he talked about being the most progressive at times. Most people thought he'd be the same old Biden we knew in the Senate, who was basically a guy who went with the, whatever his party was doing, and he was willing to work with the other side, and he was not the kind of president we now have. And I thought to myself, this midterm is going to be people's first opportunity to register their objections to what they see. The Afghanistan withdrawal started it, the decline in public's confidence in him after that, the arrival of inflation with a, you know, with a, real, with a really tough blow to people. Uh, the condition of the economy, generally people think it's in recession already. Um, the lawlessness in the streets, the lawlessness at the border, these are all things that are the stuff of a wave. Um, but remember, there still are more Democrats than Republicans in America. And so everything, as you suggest, depends on who turns out. Turn out and where the independents go. And the independents, again, the polling suggests that they are uh, not it, enamored of this president or his party. And usually under these circumstances, those unaffiliated late deciders break one way, and it's usually not the way the Democrats are hoping for this year. But nothing can be taken to the bank until it's over. And that's like I keep hammering away. I do want to ask you this, though, since you brought up President Biden, and I think the the face of his of his presidency is going to have to change starting in a few days through no choice of his own. The voters are going to force a new era in his presidency where he won't have democratic control of of everything anymore. I also am starting to see, Brett, and maybe you are too, some indications that the media already are starting to draw the knives for this guy where they feel like they've been protecting him for a while, but after these midterm elections, they won't have much of an incentive to do so anymore, and they're getting ready to throw him overboard. Is that a conspiracy theory? No, I think it's true, Guy, and, and, and we're seeing stories about Biden's gaffes. He's always been a gaffe machine. I've known him forever. Yeah. Always been a gaffe machine. He's committed just a couple of beauties in the last few days. Yep. Uh, he's misspoken and stumbled and told wild fairy tales. Uh, has He's done that all along. They're starting to call him out on that, which mm-hmm. is something that didn't happen for nearly two years. Yeah. So that's, subtle. So subtle. That, all of a sudden, the fact checkers are like, oh, hang on just a second. You didn't. That isn't true. <laughs> that's not right. That's Let's not what, write something yeah, about this. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> so that, that, that suggests to me that uh, – that, you know that they, uh, these media reporters think that maybe it's time to try to get the hook for him because they look at the guy. Look, let's face it: the guy's always been a gaff machine. He's never been the smartest guy that ever lived by any by any stretch, and now he's pal- palpably, obviously senile. And I think they look at him and say, "This guy's a loser in 2024." And you know, we we journalists who who were all about the cause of getting rid of Donald Trump may not have to be about the cause of getting rid of Joe Biden. Right, in order to help the Democrats have a chance exactly. of winning again, because exactly. that's that's often how they think, whether they do it consciously or subconsciously. I think it's a combination of those things. Naturally. But, yeah, it just comes, it's, it's, it comes very naturally to them. That is true. It's their tribe. But 
I think with so much attention paid to the president and the presidency and this president in particular, if and when the Democrats lose the House tomorrow, this is the end of the Pelosi era, right? She She's not sticking around for more cycles of trying to regain leadership. The leadership in the House on the Democratic side is very old. Geriatric. Geriatric. And I think it'll be very interesting to see what comes next because, you know, Biden is their problem a year or two from now. Their immediate problem is Pelosi, Hoyer, Clyburn, I think probably – all gone at some point here. And then what does the next generation look like for the Democratic Party in Congress? Well, you're going to probably, if, if it's a really bad night for the Democrats and you know, they lose the House by a very wide margin, they lose the Senate as well, you're going to start hearing the drumbeat for new, younger leadership. And they're going to have to find some leaders. And, you know, because, you know, they're, they, these, these leaders, they're, all of them are old in both parties to some extent. But the Democratic leadership is really old. Yeah. And I wonder, though, because Pelosi, for all of her faults and things that I disagree with her about, which is almost everything, she was, for the most part, quite good at being ruthless about getting her people, counting her votes properly, and patching together people who at least had to pretend to be moderate, although they always voted with her anyway. And then the really sort of Wild West left-wing squad folks she kept the train on the tracks for the most part. She did. The next generation of leadership, I mean, there's going to be more on the left flank. Right. They're going to probably be in the minority. This is not the easiest gig to come into. No, it isn't. She was an exceptionally able floor leader. Always has been. Terrible spokesperson. Terrible. Uh, always seemed to be fumbling for words and so on. She wasn't a good spokesperson. But she ran her caucus very effectively. She mm-hmm. knew where the votes were, as you suggest. Uh, she knew how to keep people in line. She's tough as nails, very capable. Um, she may decide that she needs to move on now um, and you know, maybe even step down from the House. After all, she has her elderly husband who was so brutally beaten. Yeah. Um, terrible um, to look after. Um, I know him, by the way, a little bit. Great guy. Paul Pelosi? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the nicest guys. Friendly and warm and charming. Kind of broke my heart to think of him. Oh, it was awful what happened to him. Britt, before we let you go, very quickly, you can make predictions or not predictions. Just overall, if you, you know, in the middle of the night, you get shaken awake tonight. Do the Republicans win the House and the Senate tomorrow? What is your inclination? Do they win both? Yeah. Yeah, on balance, narrowly, yes, but I don't do predictions. Okay, okay, so that's that's not bad. We we almost got a prediction, but not really. Well, what I I'd say about it is the fundamentals all point paint one picture. Uh huh. The map paints a slightly different picture, mm-hmm. and that's why it's close. I think that's exactly right, and I will go through my in depth analysis and predictions coming up in the next hour on this show. So feel free to tune in and stay tuned for that coming up in a little while. Britt Hume, a rare treat in studio, senior political analyst here at Fox News, a staple for many years at this network, and he will be featured tomorrow on the special coverage. So will I. Not quite as much, but I'm looking forward to being a small part of it. Britt, it is really, really good to see you. My great pleasure, Guy. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure as well. Britt Hume on The Guy Benson Show, just getting started on this Monday. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show. Did you see this soundbite? I reacted to it actually earlier today on America Reports on the news channel. There's a guy called Sean Patrick Maloney, who's the Democratic Campaign Committee chairman on the House side, DCCC, or the DTRIP in D.C. parlance is what they call it. So he's the chairman. He's a congressman from New York, a Democrat, obviously. He's in real trouble in his reelection race. With the redistricting, he chose his preferred district. That was a controversy. He got a lot of Democrats mad at him. And it is neck and neck with his Republican challenger. He could lose tomorrow night here in New York. And he gave an interview, looked like a podcast of some sort, talking about inflation. And I'm not sure this is the messaging that Democrats want to land on. Maybe it's just me. Cut 22. Yeah, well, I grew up in a family where, you know, if the if the gas price went up, the food budget went down. So by this time of the week, we'd be eating Chef Boyardee if, if that budget wasn't going to change, right? So that's what families have to do. That's what families have to do. Families have to eat canned goods because of inflation. It's just so expensive. Just open up your Chef Boyardee. That's what you have to do. Now, look, I actually don't hate Chef Boyardee as a kid like I'd have it. It's like a food-related product. I don't know if you can call it fine dining or really Italian food. I know producer Christine would. Right? She's like, this is authentic Italian food. She swears by it. Prego. But I think people understand Chef Boyardee and that kind of thing. It's like, you know, it's fine for kids. What you don't want to be doing is telling people, oh, the price of things are going up. Open up your canned food, and that's what you'll have for dinner. Quote, that's what families have to do. And that message coming, by the way, from a member of Congress who voted for every single dollar, as did almost all of them. Like 99-plus percent of them in Congress, the Democrats, voted for every single dollar of this inflationary spending. In fact, Sean Patrick Maloney and all the House Democrats, Tim Ryan and Val Demings and all of them, all of them, with one exception, they all voted for Build Back Better. The one guy from Maine voted against it. All the rest of them voted for Build Back Better. Trillions more. They wanted trillions more spent, and they passed it out of the House. Imagine how much worse inflation would be if Joe Biden and the House Democrats had gotten their way would build, build back better. And this guy has the gall to say, well, you know, yeah, inflation's really bad and we did all the spending. No regrets. And now, you know, if you're struggling out there, just, you know, find your can opener and that's how you feed your family. Good luck. Whew. That is an interesting final closing argument heading into the midterms. The Guy Benson Show, back right after this. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. From New York, it's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. So let's think about what's at stake tomorrow. Tomorrow is Election Day. Most people vote on Election Day. Certainly Republicans tend to lean toward voting on Election Day itself for various reasons. As I was mentioning with Britt Hume not long ago, the Democrats have spent now weeks, in some cases longer, building up a blue wall of early votes. There's a few exceptions where it's not really looking that great for them in the early vote, like Florida which is shaping up to be just a, a walloping. But in a lot of these places, Pennsylvania, you just go around the map. Democrats vote early. Republicans vote on Election Day. So that's an indication that there's a lot on the line tomorrow. Republicans are counting on big, big turnout from their core voters tomorrow. They need a red wave to breach the blue wall that has been built up in these early votes. And you might be wondering, okay, is it really worth it? A lot of people are unhappy with the direction of the country. Almost, I mean, it's what, 25, 75, like it's not close. People are deeply dissatisfied with the direction of the country, especially on the economy. And the president of the United States is out there making arguments in the final days ahead of the election, that I think ought to be motivating for everyone to go vote. I know there are some Democrats, especially in some of these really tight, close races, who don't want tomorrow to be a referendum on their party and their party's leader. They want to say, oh, well, I'm different, I'm independent, I'm an independent thinker, I'm not Joe Biden. And what they are hoping to do, and some of the polls show that So far, at least, they're having some success. They are trying to run well ahead of Joe Biden's poor job approval approval numbers in their districts and their states. But as far as I'm concerned, what tomorrow must be is an accountability gut check moment where the American people get to render a verdict on a simple question. Do you like what is happening under this president and under unified Democratic control of Washington? Looking at what's happened in your life and in this country for the last two years, are you a yes or a no? And if you're happy, if you look back at these last two years and you say, yeah, good, good for this, I want more of this, then you know what to do. It's an easy vote. You vote for the Democrats. But if not... If you look around and you say we are appreciably worse off in multiple ways and the people in charge are arrogant and never course correct, then you have to correct the course for them. And you can only do that 
through the ballot box in our elections. They only happen every two years. There is a duty to go out and make your voice heard. And I said Biden's making these arguments that I think should motivate you. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Well, we talked about this weeks ago. Biden asked about the economy, broadly speaking, and as he licked an ice cream cone, he was like, oh, yeah. What was the phrase? Strong as hell, cut five. I'm not concerned about the defense of the dollar. I'm concerned about the rest of the world. Does that make sense? Yes. Our economy is strong as hell. Our economy is strong as hell. With a mouthful of ice cream. That's what the president asserted. In the last few days alone, he's built on that theme. For example, in cut three, listen to what he said about his policies in the American people. The thing that gives me the most confidence is the fact that the policies we've initiated, people care about. Now they want more. The thing that gives me the most confidence, he's talking about these elections, is the fact that the policies that we've initiated, people want more. People care about, quote, they want more. President Biden is under the impression and said it out loud that what the American electorate is crying out for collectively right now is more of what he and the Democrats are doing to this country. They want more. That's his quote. If you agree, if you want more, vote for his party. If you don't, there's an alternative. I would say in a lot of cases, a deeply flawed alternative. But we've seen what one party rule can do, especially from a party that is radical, arrogant, no interest whatsoever in being responsive to the needs, concerns, priorities of people, no accountability. So little accountability, in fact, that the leader of that party, with the right track, wrong track numbers the way they are, with the economic numbers the way they are, says, well, the one thing is that I can tell about the American people is with our policies, they just want a lot more of it. If the Democrats win tomorrow, we know what they're going to do. He's promising more of the same. And in case there was any doubt about it, at another event this weekend— When it came to one-party Democrat rule and the governance that he and his party have overseen, he was very straightforward about his view in cut four. Our approach is working. Our approach is working. The economy is strong as hell. The American people like our policies and they want more of them. Our approach is working. That is Joe Biden's position. He believes it. Tomorrow is an opportunity to register support or rejection of that collective proposition that he's offering. They have no inclination whatsoever to pivot or change or moderate or do anything differently. His message is effectively to everyone, you're welcome, America. Now, we've talked about it a few different times. There's a Politico story out a couple weeks ago from one of the top pollsters in the Democratic Party, Stan Greenberg, freaking out because the you're welcome, America, look at everything that we've done for you. He said in his polling, that is the worst performing message the Democrats have, literally the worst. 
He said not only is it neutral where people just roll their eyes, it actively alienates them. It pisses them off. To see Democrats like sitting back with their arms crossed with a look of satisfaction, just smugness on their face. Look at what we've done for you. And if you don't understand it, well, that's your fault. You're welcome. The economy's strong as hell. People want more. Our approach is working. It is the worst possible message that Biden can be trotting out, and yet he's doing it, which I think is sort of helpful. Now, here's the other thing on top of it, and this gives you, I think, the real tell that there's no interest in that pivot, in that moderation, into shifting toward a type of presidency that he advertised he would run, right? On the campaign trail, he was, you know, the sort of the moderate guy who wasn't the Bernie Sanders wing, and he knew how to work with Republicans. And he said during his victory speech after he won the election that a huge part of his mandate was going to be healing and working together. That's what he sold to voters from the basement with Donald Trump sucking up all the drama and oxygen. He's like, well, just bring things back to normal And I'm familiar, and we'll just sort of lower the temperature. That is not the way that he has governed at all. And he will continue to not govern that way unless he is forced down a different path by voters tomorrow. And the aforementioned tell that he has to be forced is two different things that he said this past weekend when it comes to energy. You look at gas prices, 380 a gallon, I think, on average as of today, 380. Way, way more expensive than it was when he took office. And he's got all these different things that he blames. Home heating prices are going to get rough this winter. We know some of this stuff is still coming. Energy is a problem. We have abundant natural resources in this country. And ideologically, the left wing of the Democratic Party does not want us to be able to exploit those resources. So instead, we have this ridiculous charade of the U.S. government and the Democrats handcuffing the Republican energy, excuse me, handcuffing the U.S. energy industry and capacity like behind our collective back and then going around on this blame storm fest, blaming everyone but themselves for their policies and the natural outflow of those policies and then going down and trying to make nice with the Venezuelan regime, begging the Saudis for stuff, working with the Iranians till the bitter end, no matter how awful the Iranians are. And how much of a malign, inch, uh, a malign influence they demonstrate themselves to be on a daily basis. That is the incoherent, insane energy policy of the Democrats right now and the Biden administration in the thrall of the far left of the party. And over the weekend, Biden talking about coal said this in cut two. It costs them too much money. They can't count. No one's building new coal plants because they can't rely on it even if they have all the coal guaranteed for the rest of the existence of the plant. So it's going to become a wind generation. And all they're doing is going to save them a hell of a lot of money and using the same transmission line that transmitted the coal-fired electric on. We're going to be shutting these plants down all across America. We're going to be shutting these plants down all across America. He also said no one's building new coal plants. Actually, fact-check false. There are a lot of coal plants being built overseas, in China, for example. So he's wrong about that. He said, we're going to be shutting down these plants, talking about coal all across America. 
Now, that might be interesting in West Virginia, where Joe Manchin had a conniption fit, put out a statement immediately. Could also be very interesting in, oh, I don't know, Ohio, Pennsylvania. This is what Biden said out loud. In fact, I can't wait to ask Mike Rowe about some of this later. I bet you he has some thoughts when Mike Rowe joins us in our final hour. We'll be shutting down these plants all across America. That's what Biden said. And then Manchin went nuclear. A bunch of people freaked out. I'm sure Democrats in PA and Ohio were like, what the hell is he doing? Don't say it. We're not supposed to say that out loud, quite this loudly, right before an election. A lot of them believe it. But they want to fool people into believing that they don't actually really mean it. But then Biden said it. So the White House had to walk it back with one of these statements. Oh, the words were twisted and the president regrets if... He just slipped up and told the truth. Now, there was another one. This was cut one. He was giving an event and a little chat in New York, and someone started heckling him, not a right winger, a left winger, one of these environmentalists, I believe. And Biden was trying to, like, you know, puff out his chest like, no, no, you got this all wrong, Bal. Here's what we're actually doing. Cut one. No more drilling. There is no more drilling. I haven't formed any new new drilling. No more drilling. We have just sat through, what has it been, months of the White House saying, oh, no, no, this is not hostility to the American energy sector. In fact, it's it's the greedy oil companies who won't drill. We give them all this permission and they just won't do it because they're greedy. And also Putin, right? They've got all their talking points. They don't want to take responsibility for any consequences, any fallout from their energy policies. So they say, oh, no, it's all these Republicans lying. It's a Republican talking point. It's a Republican conspiracy theory that we are anything other than upbeat about American energy. No, it's it's talk to the oil companies. It's their problem. That's the gaslighting that they've been attempting now for months as they try to wriggle off the hook of responsibility for what their policies have dictated. It's false. There's a big Wall Street Journal story explaining how it's false. These permits trickling to basically a stop under Biden. And they say, nope, that's not true. That is not true. It's just corporate greed and and Russia. And then On consecutive days right before the election, the president himself goes out and says, we're going to shut down coal plants all across America, and there's no more drilling. Boasting, that's his policy. No more drilling as he's trying to assuage a left-winger, being like, no, see, I am a left-winger just like you. No more drilling, shut down the coal plants. Oh, but it's about corporate greed and the oil companies, we're supposed to believe. So revealing. So he is unable to change course. He and his team are in this thing for the left wing. The only way we set out on a different course under this president, it won't be perfect. It'll still be bad in a lot of ways. But a better way with checks and balances and accountability is if that is forced upon him by the voters tomorrow. If the voters believe, no, we don't want more, Mr. President, of these policies. No, Your approach is not working, Mr. President. No, the economy does not feel strong as hell, Mr. President. Tomorrow, straight up, is a national referendum on whether you agree with Joe Biden or not on what he's been saying. Render a verdict. Do it 
in force and vote. Now, there's another top Democrat who's out there trying to argue that something else completely is at stake. Some really wild comments on Fox News Sunday that we will get to next right here on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Democracy will be ended. The world will continue to exist. The world was here before Hitler. The world was here after Hitler. That's what we're saying. No, the world will not end. The kind of world we have, the kind of country we have, we've got to decide how do we want to exist in this world. And that's what we're talking about. And people want to deny it, that's fine. But the facts are very clear. I've studied history all of my life. Okay. I taught history. And I'm telling you, what I see here are parallels to what the history was uh, in this world uh, back in the 1930s in Germany, in Italy. Back on the Guy Benson Show. We are back. And that was Shannon Bream trying to cut in in her conversation yesterday on Fox News Sunday with Congressman Jim Clyburn, who's a part of Democratic leadership. He showed up having a normal one on a Sunday morning on Fox News Sunday, a nationally televised broadcast serious news show in a Hawaiian shirt and started talking about Hitler and the Nazis. And the implication directly is if if Republicans win, if voters vote the wrong way in an election and vote for the other party, it's basically the end of democracy. And the world won't end, but democracy in our country will. It's just so ridiculous and desperate and disgusting. Just casually saying in his Hawaiian shirt on Fox News Sunday, oh, yeah, it's Hitler. Hitler and the Nazis. Talking about election deniers, a lot of whom his party financed in Republican primaries. They're just so full of it. He's the same guy, by the way, who just said recently, remember this, cut nine about the Democratic spending bills. Well, let me make it very clear. All of us are concerned about these rising costs. And all of us knew this would be the case uh, when we put in place this recovery program. Anytime you put more money uh, into uh, the economy, uh, prices uh, tend to rise. Yeah, we all knew that this would cause inflation. We did it anyway. And by the way, if you have a problem with it and vote accordingly, then you're really just bringing back the Nazis in America. Same guy. Another motivation to vote tomorrow. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show from New York City. Very glad to have you here. Thank you for listening every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. That's when we air live. If you miss any of it, you miss a lot. We have a podcast for that free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at GuyBensonShow. And tune in tonight for Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel. I will be part of the crew tonight. It should be a lot of fun. Fox News alert as we enter this middle hour. The Dow racing up 425 points. I actually wonder if some of this is pricing in Republican wins and at least divided government or expected divided government. 
with some of the damage politically coming to an end or at least slowing way down. I wonder if that is part of this. And we'll get into my predictions and analysis about what's going to happen tomorrow later on this hour in some detail. So stay tuned for that. But the Dow up 425, ending the day at 32,829. Joining us now is Ted Budd, a Republican congressman from North Carolina. He is the GOP nominee for U.S. Senate in that state in a race that we have been calling a must win for Republicans ever since the matchup was finalized. And, Congressman, it's good to have you back here. Yeah, it's wonderful to be back as well. Uh, We're about 36 hours out and we're running hard. Yeah, so let's talk about your race and where things stand. Just to underscore it and underline it again in red ink, if that seat that you're running for, being vacated by Senator Burr, falls into Democratic hands and your opponent, Ms. Beasley, then the Republicans' chances for winning the Senate back are basically dead as a doornail. Uh, dead as a doornail, as far as I'm concerned. And it's like a a must-win, crucial matchup for the Republicans just to hold that seat. And you and I have spoken now multiple times over the course of this campaign. And as the campaign has progressed, your lead has been eh, kind of smaller, modest, and growing a little bit. And as of right now, you're ahead in the average by more than five points. I saw another poll that had you up six and at a majority uh, in your state. Are you feeling good about where you stand right now? Are you confident you're going to hold this seat? We're going to do everything to earn everyone's vote out there. We're, you know, we've been to all 100 counties, guy. I would never say you're confident here in North Carolina. We'll be confident tomorrow night when the voters – uh, affirm that they want to get this country back on the right track by rejecting Joe Biden's uh, basically a surrogate, which would be Sherry Beasley. She would be a complete rubber stamp for him and everything that he's done in these last two years. That's why we've been out there talking about inflation. We've been talking about crime. We've been talking about education. And people just want to get this country back on the right track. And that's why this is a must-win seat, because if it doesn't bode well for North Carolina, for Republicans, it won't bode well for the rest of the country. So we have to win here, yep. and we have to win around the country. And look, if I were betting on your race, I would absolutely bet that you will win. I think you'll win by North Carolina modern standards fairly comfortably, but you never know. And part of the reason that I think you're right not to be overconfident is, number one, you've got to motivate people to actually turn out on Election Day and do the thing and cast their ballots. And if you look at some of the early voting congressmen, there are just a few little tea leaves in there, and you can't read too deeply into them, where the Democrats might be overperforming just a little bit compared to last time around. There were some very close races in that state, statewide races, two years ago. I think that the red wave of Election Day takes care of that and then some, but you never know. And if the Democrats were sort of hitting some of their marks in the early vote, that just adds to the urgency and the necessity of people to stay the course, show up, do their civic duty tomorrow. I would 100% agree because it's look, if people talk about the red wave, it makes people passive. They want to sit back and watch a wave. You got to get in there and splash. You got to make it happen. And that means that we show up for North Carolina. It was 17 days of early voting. That's over. It ended Saturday at 3 p.m. Now it starts tomorrow, early in the morning, and goes all the way through 7:30 in the evening. And we have to get people to turn out and vote. Let's talk about you mentioned President Biden. In the last hour, I was just playing some of the things that he has said. Over the last few weeks and even in the last couple of days, he said, for example, this is now weeks ago, that the U.S. economy is strong as hell. He said it. 
He said that the Democrat only their way or the highway approach to governance is working. He said our approach is working. That was over the weekend. He also said that the American people are looking what the Democrats have done, looking at their policies and, quote, they want more. The reason I raise this uh, to you, Congressman, is because this does not sound like a man who is chastened at all, who is responsive at all to the way people are feeling in this country right now, which does not reflect the statements that you just heard. We're doing great. They want more of this. You know, our approach is working and the economy is strong as hell. That is the Joe Biden position in all of this. And I would imagine you probably dissent on several points. You know, that just shows how out of touch he is. I think he was eating ice cream at that moment. Yep. Uh, you know, when everybody's out there trying to figure out how they can afford other groceries besides, uh, you know, the luxuries of ice cream right now. But Joe Biden basically wants more from you. I want more for you. I want more for North Carolinians. I want a better future. I mean, when I, I'm getting ready to drive into Wake County, we've been all over the eastern part of the state today. But I, I know about a secretary here. She's probably six months from retirement right now. And her question was this. She doesn't know if she could afford gas in her car to get to her job, to get to her retirement. That's real. That's how people are talking about this Joe Biden inflation right now when he pumps trillions of dollars into our economy unnecessarily, spiking demand, raising inflation, and then he chokes down the supply side. He overregulates through unelected bureaucrats. He, he discourages work. It, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And, he's, you know, he's raised the price of energy by shutting down production. So it's made us less secure and a lot more expensive and harder for people here in our country. Well, and he's bragging about it. And this is other sound that we played in the last hour. He said over the weekend he was just talking about shutting down coal plants across the whole country. And he also said that there's going to be no more drilling. That's it was a direct quote. He said it multiple times in response to a left wing heckler. He was bragging that his his policy, his administration's policy is no more drilling. In addition to the shutting down of coal plants, you've got the energy problem that people are already feeling with that pinch, Congressman. And Biden is out loud saying proudly that they are not going to flinch from these policies. Well, this more thing that he's talking about is about shoving more unwanted, unhelpful things down people's throats, including the $93 trillion Green New Deal. Now he's done it in several installments, but he's shoving it down people's throats. And look, if people want to, you know, clean water, clean air, as Republicans, we're all for those things. But you don't shove these things that are ineffective. They make things more expensive here in the U.S. Jobs leave the U.S., and then they make it in China where it's twice as much pollution per unit of economic output. It's completely backwards, and it hurts not just your things here in the U.S. and our Americans. It's hard for the rest of the world as well, Guy. Your opponent, Sherry Beasley, you described her as a would-be rubber stamp for Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer. Has she attempted to dispute that in any sort of substantive way, saying, no, I actually disagree with my party and would vote against them on big issues? How does she deal with the unpopularity of the president and his agenda while kind of sort of trying to pretend like she wouldn't go along with everything when the suspicion is, based on her record and her politics, that she would? No, the only thing she disputes about Joe Biden is calendars, and that's uh, she can't seem to find a way to uh, be with him if he ever comes through North Carolina or the <laughs> vice president, Kamala Harris. 
she avoids him like the plague. Uh, she refused to answer the question on the October 7th debate. Uh, she squirmed around his policy. She squirmed around meeting with him. She wouldn't answer the, the uh, moderator's question. When, I, when they asked me about President Trump, I said, look, he won North Carolina twice. He's endorsed me. I'm grateful for his support, and I'm an America first candidate. So I'm not going to run away from anything. Styles are very different, but again, he, is, he won North Carolina twice, and I'm grateful for his support. So about 30 seconds, Congressman, what's your closing pitch to voters in North Carolina? Everything that I have done in the U.S. Congress and everything that I will do in the U.S. Senate is about making life better for us here in North Carolina and in our country. And everything that Sherry Beasley's about will make life harder and has its lockstep with Joe Biden, which has made life harder and more expensive and less secure here in our country. Ted Budd is a Republican congressman. He hopes to get elected tomorrow to the United States Senate from the great state of North Carolina. As I've said, a must-win seat. I think he's going to win it, but not without a lot of help from the voters tomorrow. Congressman, we'll be watching. We'll have you back sometime soon, hopefully as senator-elect. Thanks, Guy. God bless. Ted Budd on The Guy Benson Show, back after this short break. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thank you very much for tuning in every day. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. Doing the show just one more day this week from New York City. Back home later tonight after we're taping Gutfeld. Looking forward to that. I am still trying to figure out in my own mind if I really believe Lee Zeldin has a true shot at winning the governor's race here. There are indicators that the answer is yes. Turnout is going to be essential. He needs to run up some very big numbers a lot of places and hope that the numbers aren't as strong in certain boroughs of New York City in terms of turnout, but also the breakdown of people voting for Kathy Hochul, the Democrat, versus voting for him. We heard from him, the man himself here on this program, that if they are north of 30 percent in New York City, then they have a real shot at winning this thing. Into the mid-30s, it starts to get more realistic, and we will know very soon whether that epic upset will actually go through. I have some skepticism, but I'm more of a believer than ever before. And part of it is not just polling showing it close. It's the behavior of Kathy Hochul and the Democrats who are not acting confident that she has this thing in the bag. They are bringing everyone in on Hochul's behalf that they can think of and also pouring millions of dollars into the race. They were not expecting this to be close. They did not have resources or really a plan or team in place to deal with a close election. So they are going with a kitchen sink approach over the final stretch. Hillary and Kamala and President Biden, and I'm just all of them. Like, get those people to New York stat. Kathy needs help. She's in some trouble. One of the cast of characters that they've included is former President Bill Clinton, who is admittedly very talented politically. He's much better, I think, on the stump generally than a lot of Democrats, almost all of them. But I'm also sort of confused. Is he canceled or not on the Me Too stuff? Remember with all the Jeffrey Epstein connections and the long history of 
alleged and proven sexual impropriety, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, allegations of sexual assault. Democrats looked the other way for a very long time because the Clintons were very powerful. They helped them achieve political outcomes that they wanted. And so some of his misdeeds were sort of just swept under the rug. But in the Me Too era, a lot of Democrats became uncomfortable associating themselves with Bill Clinton, at least for a while. So he was at least temporarily put out to pasture. They didn't really want him anymore. He wasn't a featured player in Democratic politics anymore. Not totally persona non grata, but definitely the relationship and the attitude had changed. But I guess in case of emergency, break glass and bring back Bill Clinton because he's back out there on the campaign trail. I guess we've all just kind of moved on from the Me Too moment. The allegations and some of the very serious things in President Clinton's past are forgivable enough that if the Democrats feel like they are in trouble when it comes to the reins of power, they are willing to turn once again to this man. And that's what they've done. He's speaking now, crisscrossing the country for the Democrats, including in Brooklyn over the weekend. This is not, I would say, Bill Clinton's best work. Kind of mocking Lee Zeldin through the prism of the crime issue. I don't think this quite lands the way that maybe he thought it would. Cut 11. Lee Zeldin, she makes it, he makes it sound like Kathy Hochul gets up every morning, goes to the nearest subway stop, and hands out billy clubs and baseball bats to everybody gets on the subway, doesn't he? It looks like he's auditioning to replace Dwayne Johnson in all those movies. I'm not quite getting this one. No one is accusing Kathy Hochul of committing crimes and assaults in the subways or elsewhere. What Zeldin is saying is her policies like the so-called bail reform are putting dangerous people back out onto the street to commit additional crimes, some of which are violent or even murders. And we've seen it over and over again, this revolving door in the criminal justice system where people get arrested, booked, released, arrested, booked, released over and over again. And there are a lot of victims and victims' families who are aghast and furious and angry that this continues to happen. And she has been unwilling to touch that legislation. That is her job. As the governor of New York, she's not just some random bystander. No one's saying she's committing crimes. If there's a problem, it's her responsibility to help solve it. And she's doing just the opposite. She ignored it for as long as she could till she realized that she was in some political peril. Then she started to kind of pretend like she was doing something about it, but won't make concrete changes that would matter. And this goes hand in hand with a lot of the failing policies in other major cities, especially in bluer jurisdictions. With district attorneys, yes, many of them financed in their campaigns by George Soros. We are allowed to talk about that. He boasts about it. He wrote a whole thing in the Wall Street Journal. An op-ed, like, no regrets, this is progress, this is justice. Well, how are American voters feeling about that? And I think just sort of laugh like, oh, there's this superhero, Lee Zeldin, who wants to be Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and he's making it seem like Kathy Hochul's handing out baseball bats in the subways. I just don't get that. That is 
strangely tone deaf for a guy who's usually better on the stump than that. Lee Zeldin had a drive-by gang-related shooting just outside his home. I don't think mocking the guy for caring deeply about the number one issue to New York voters based on multiple polls is quite the own, quite the diss, quite the indictment that Bill Clinton seems to think it is. Maybe he's lost a step. Not as many steps, I would argue, as the current president. But that, to me, the clip that you just heard is a strange one. And people can decide here in New York, do they agree with Clinton, this weirdo Zeldin and his concern about crime, like Kathy Hochul said at the debate? Why does this matter so much to you? Why is this so important to you? Talking about locking up dangerous criminals. She calls it a manipulation. She calls it a conspiracy by Republicans. Bill Clinton thinks it's funny. If they agree, voters can vote for more of the same. They can vote for the status quo here in New York. If not, there is a rare, potentially golden opportunity for some change tomorrow in the Empire State. We'll be watching here and all across the country, of course. What is going to happen all across the country? What do I predict will happen tomorrow? I have no special crystal ball or special insight, but I will bring you my analysis, and my predictions when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Democracy 2022. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you along. GuyBensonShow.com. That is our website. The podcast is free every day. All right, right before the break, I teased predictions. And I posted in some depth my analysis and predictions of what's going to happen tomorrow at townhall.com on the tip sheet earlier today. I want to walk you through some of my arguments. What should we expect tomorrow? I think the conventional wisdom is that Republicans are going to have something of a good night that they are going to make gains, and that is baked into the cake. I would say, barring some sort of truly seismic political event or turn of fate, the conventional wisdom is broadly correct. I don't expect the Democrats to have a good night. The question is, can the Democrats mitigate the damage based on history and a bunch of other factors? Are we looking at something of a red ripple, which would be underwhelming, but it would still sweep the Republicans into power in the House? Will it be more of a sizable, maybe medium red wave in which Republicans gain control of the House by a decent margin, win back the Senate maybe by a seat? Or are we staring down the barrel of a blowout? One of these historic wave elections that we'll be talking about and referencing back to for years to come. I think that the first possibility that I just mentioned, the ripple, is still plausible. If Democrats have better than expected turnout, that maybe some of the polling isn't picking up or is underestimating, because sometimes polling misses, polling errors can cut in both directions. Polling errors don't always benefit the Republicans. 
or underestimate the Republicans. I know we've talked about Nate Cohn at the New York Times worried that that's the case, that these polls are underestimating Republican support. Robert Cahaley at Trafalgar, a right-leaning pollster, he believes the same thing. I tend to agree, but I'm not ruling out the possibility of the opposite effect. So if the Dems have better than expected turnout, Republican turnout is fine but not on fire. If Republican voters get complacent, they feel like, all right, we've got this. It's in the bag. The wave is coming, and we can just sit back with the popcorn and enjoy. That's not how it works. I keep saying it. Waves are created by voters. They do not materialize automatically. And the other factor is, you know, independence, late breakers. My guess, based on polling, based on history, is that they should break pretty decisively away from the president's party. But if that doesn't happen, that would be another factor that could hold down Republican gains. I will make some high-level predictions, but I want to walk you through how I'm thinking about this. To me, there are four factors at play, and they each tell a slightly different story. I think they all kind of point generally in the same direction, but it's a matter of degree. So the first factor is race-by-race polling, the head-to-head polling in matchups that we're all talking about on a regular basis and have been now for months, right? Like Kelly versus Masters in Arizona, Oz versus Fetterman in Pennsylvania, you name it. If you go just by the race-by-race polling in individual races, the Democrats are doing sort of okay. And the Republicans are just, I would say, so-so in the race-by-race polling. It's not pointing to a bad cycle for Republicans at all, but it's not really pointing to the type of wave that would make you say, whoa. A lot of these races are basically if not explicitly tied. Democrat up a point or two, Republican up a point or two, could really go either direction. If that was your only guide, you, I think, would say, just in these individual race-by-race polls and even the polling averages, you would say, okay, this could be a decent night for the Republicans, but probably not a whole lot more than that. Now, I think that there are caveats to that. Like a lot of these Democrats who are holding their own, I think that's the phrase that we keep hearing, they're holding their own, and they are in these races, in these polling averages for the most part. But they're holding their own at 45%, 46%, 47%, maybe 48%. That's not a place to be holding their own with any degree of confidence that when all the votes are counted, they're going to end up on top. So I think that that is something to keep in mind. But again, factor one is race-by-race polling, and it is the least bad of these four factors for the Democrats, for the ruling party. Then you've got the broader national polling, the generic congressional ballot, which tries to predict when you add up all the House votes in all 435 districts all across the country and you take the so-called popular vote, you add it together, will Republicans or Democrats lead and by how much? And this cycle... The real clear politics average is right around two and a half points. The Republicans are ahead. And whenever the Republicans are ahead on the congressional ballot, a metric on which they usually trail overall, that's 
generally pretty good news for them. All right, let's not forget, in 2020, last election cycle, going into that election, the real clear politics average of the generic congressional ballot had the Democrats ahead by around seven points. That was off. It was off by four percentage points. The Democrats won the National House, quote-unquote, popular vote by 3%. And guess what happened? The outcome was less than half of the predicted margin based on the polling. And because of the way that districts are drawn, even though Democrats won the so-called generic House vote by three points, Republicans gained double-digit seats in 2020. So that was with the Democrats ahead, Republicans gained seats. If the Republicans are ahead by two and a half points, if that's the margin that they end up winning by and the polling is accurate, that would be a good night for the Republicans. Good, I would say, bordering on very good. But it would still be short of the type of destruction that we saw in 2010, for instance. Now, if there is a polling error that benefits Republicans, meaning Republicans outperform the polls and the polls are already showing them up by two and a half points, that's where you really start getting into big wave territory. That's where you get that big wave energy. If there's another polling error, which for reasons that I referenced a moment ago, very well could be the case. All right. So factor one is the race by race head to head polling. Decent for Republicans, not great. Second factor is the national polling. Better for the Republicans. Still not great, but better. The third factor that I want to talk to you about is one that you've heard me say over and over again. I've been referencing this word, the fundamentals. What are the fundamentals of this cycle? I keep returning to it because I think it is exceptionally important. The fundamentals always matter a huge amount. Let's pretend for a moment, that we had no polling data at all, no congressional ballot numbers, no head-to-head numbers. All we knew was the following. It's the first midterm election of a new presidency. That president and his party control all of Washington, D.C. That president is unpopular. Disapproval rating is a majority. Independents are very dissatisfied with his job performance and the direction of the country. Economic dissatisfaction is high. New NBC poll out this weekend had 81% unhappy with the state of the economy. And the party out of power, the opposition party, in this case Republicans, leads among voters on their top priority issues. If that is all that we knew about this cycle with no access to any specific polling whatsoever... I think we would confidently conclude that the opposition party, the Republicans, would be heavily favored to win substantial victories tomorrow. That is true in a vacuum, and I think it will be true in practice as well. The fundamentals are telling a very clear story, and even though the race-by-race and the national polling doesn't quite align with those fundamentals totally, they're at least in the same zip code at this point. And if I had to pick between the polls and the fundamentals, which one wins out, I'd probably go with the fundamentals, especially because the polls aren't telling that different of a story, right? There's not 
that much of a divergence or a dichotomy there. Fourth factor, and I think this goes to a combination of the previous three. You look at the professional prognosticators, Cook Political Report, Real Clear Politics, the Crystal Ball, that organization. Their job is to call this and call this stuff right. Now, they've gotten things wrong, but it's embarrassing for them to get things wrong, especially very wrong. It's their business. It's their livelihood. They want to be right. And you have seen from these people, these various groups and organizations, a pretty steady march over the last couple weeks moving races rightward, moving races overwhelmingly, heavily in favor of the Republicans. Toss-up races tipping right, left-leaning races all of a sudden in the toss-up category. I think that's important because they're seeing public polling like we all are. They're also privy to private polling. They also have lots of conversations, candid off-the-record conversations with activists and operatives on both sides. And based on that constellation of data inputs, you see these different organizations and prognosticators and predictors shifting their projections toward the Republicans. And perhaps within this same category, more important than that is the money. Follow the money. The polls and the talking heads, that's all one thing. Look at what the people in charge of the purse strings of the campaigns are doing. And you are seeing Republican money flooding into Biden districts, in some cases that are Biden plus 10 to Biden plus 20, where the Republicans are going on offense, while the Democrats appear to be engaged in triage in a lot of races. They are not for kicks and giggles sending millions of dollars to Kathy Hochul in New York. They're not. They're doing that because they feel like they need to. And if the Democrats at the 11th hour feel compelled to spend millions of dollars in New York that could perhaps be deployed elsewhere, tight governor races in Nevada or Wisconsin, maybe even Michigan, there's a host of opportunities for them, Arizona, to spend that money differently, but they're not. They're sending it to New York. That's just one data point. I'm saying the money overall is flowing in such a way that aligns with what? It aligns with the prognostications moving. It also aligns with the fundamentals. And it also suggests that the national polling and the race-by-race polling is accurate or underestimating what the Republicans are poised to do. So those are my four factors that I've been watching. And you can maybe weight them differently than I do in terms of priority or importance or what they might reveal. I will try to put it all together with a final slate of predictions ahead of tomorrow's voting when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. If you're a regular listener to the program, you know that I've been asking this question for months. On and off, it's not like every day, but from time to time I bring it up as I think about the midterm elections that are finally happening tomorrow. I mean, I've had enough of the pre-analysis, let's get some outcomes, finally. But the question I've been asking is, 
will the 2022 midterm elections look more like the 2018 midterm elections or the 2014 midterm elections? Now, I'm not saying that we are anywhere close to a blue wave like we saw in 2018. I'm talking about 2018 in reverse, where Republicans would have a good night in the House, win back control of the House, but because of the map and other dynamics and factors, they would underwhelm on the Senate side of things. And it wouldn't really be a complete tidal wave, but still a good night. That's option A. Option B is 2014. 2014 was a midterm election that was looking surprisingly close for a very long time. And people were asking, we were just talking with Tom Cotton about this the other day. Why aren't these Republicans pulling away in these Senate races? Are these candidates flawed? Are the Republicans going to blow it again in the U.S. Senate? They can never beat these Democratic incumbents. Is it time for another round of disappointment for the Republicans, especially in the Senate? And then at the very end of the cycle... The dam broke. There was a cascade of movement to the Republicans, undecideds, independents, heavily, decisively went red. And Republicans ended up with 247 House seats. They net gained nine Senate seats and had a substantial majority in the upper chamber after that election. In a way that wasn't absolutely certain or crystal clear, even a few weeks or days before the election. Which of those two options, door number one, door number two, option A, option B, are we more likely to see? It's possible that this election cycle kind of splits the difference a little bit. That's where I'm going. It won't be quite 2018 in reverse. It'll be a little better than that. But it won't be the blowout of 2014. That's my best guess, but I'm not fully convinced of it. My average guess, prediction, is that the Republicans will end up in the neighborhood of about 235 House seats, which would be a gain of roughly two dozen seats net. So 235 in the House, and I think they end up with 51 seats in a majority in the Senate as well. There's a couple different ways you can get there. Let's say Oz can't win in Pennsylvania, but Laxalt wins in Nevada. And then there's, let's say, a runoff in Georgia and Herschel wins. There's 51. There's a few different paths to 51 for the Republicans. I think their worst case scenario in the Senate is 50. I think 51 is a safe-ish bet. 52 is absolutely not crazy. Neither even is 53. If you get into 2014 range, 54 is perhaps on the board. I'm not willing to go there just yet. By the way, I think the Republicans probably net one governorship. They'll lose a couple in the Northeast. They'll gain a couple elsewhere. I think it nets out to a gain of one across the country. Now, I gave you my average guess. There's a pessimistic side. There's an optimistic side. If I had to lean one way or the other, more pessimistic or more optimistic based on everything that I'm seeing, especially based on those fundamentals, I would lean and err more on the optimistic side. That's where my head is. That's what I see tomorrow. But what do I know? We can come back and revisit my analysis when we have actual results very, very soon. Most importantly, vote. 
Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Mike Rowe will be here in studio. Looking forward to that straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is our happy hour from New York City on this Monday... One day out from the election. Thank you so much for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, that's every weekday. Then this final hour of the three, 5 to 6 Eastern, that is the happy hour. Sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious and refreshing. 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com, all the info that you need there. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com, where the podcast is free, on demand, every day. Follow us on social at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. And catch me tonight. On Gutfeld, the last Gutfeld episode before the election should be wild, 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. With us here in studio in New York is Mike Rowe, founder of Micro Works Foundation. He's also the host, narrator, and executive producer of How America Works. That's Fox Business Network every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Also catch his podcast, The Way I Heard It. Mike, it's great to see you. Nice to uh, do this in person for once, Guy. It's yeah. been a while. Yeah, we've done a few phoners, especially uh-huh. during the pandemic, but face-to-face is a lot better. I want to start with this show on FBN, How America Works. Your shows about working Americans and what keeps this country going, whether it's all the way back to dirty jobs, up through how America works, to me, they're just sort of addictive. Once you get going, you can't stop. What's the hook on how America works? Why should people tune in? Well, I mean, if you like dirty jobs, you'll like this, um, partially because I'm not as embedded as I was in the uh, in the older gig. But the truth is, it's still an attempt to tap the country on the shoulder and say, get a load of him, get a load of her, look at what they're doing, and imagine your life without it. That's the earnest part of it. The fun part is, you know, it's a romp. The viewer gets to come along. They feel like they're a fly on the wall. Um, certainly with 30 jobs, you know, we we, we never did a second take. Uh, it was a very honest show. With How America Works, we're a little more focused on the industries and not just the individuals. So we take big looks at big topics, everything from steel to oil to aluminum to salt to copper um, tonight, it's the Army. You know, we just give an honest look at the Army, how the Army works, how they've changed over the years, the struggles they have with recruiting and so forth. So it's um, it's really just a reminder that says, look, out of sight and out of mind seems to go hand in hand with all that is essential. And if I really have a job, I I think it's just to keep circling back to that and asking that same question. I want to come back to a word that you just used, which is essential. Before we do that, though, is there a moment from the current season that stands out, something extra memorable people should maybe stay tuned for or keep an eye out for? Just something in your mind where you said, wow, that was a pretty special or interesting or profound moment. Yeah, you know, it's it's tricky. There, there are so many. It's really – I. All of the moments have one thing in common, and it's the uh, it's a wonderful life moment where you where you get to seriously ask yourself, 
where would we be without this industry or that industry? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did wildland firefighters. They're probably the most present. I mean, I don't have to spend a lot of time trying to make a persuasive case for why you should dig firefighters. We get that. Uh-huh. But it's a different world with with copper mining um, or aluminum or sugar or any of these big industries that we just don't think about, but that are so inextricably entwined in every single thing we do. That's the totality of of the show. It was the same thing with season one, season two. This show is probably going to go on for a long, long time, I hope, because people, I think Americans need to be reminded every so often, this is how it works. And to your point of uh, essentiality, if that's mm-hmm. even a word, you know, we, we talked a lot about it during the lockdowns. I think it's part of the reason why shows like this are, are back in favor. But it's a trap, too, right? I mean, what isn't essential? What job is not? Everybody's essential to somebody, even if it's just to themselves. So Dirty Jobs was the granddaddy of essential working shows. And, and, and to see all of that come back around 20 years later now, we can have a conversation that says, I, I'm not sure what work isn't essential, honestly. And uh, I think that's an important thing to, to ponder as well. And you sort of got a sense of where I was going with this, because when you and I did have these conversations about work during the pandemic, when a lot of people couldn't work, where their workplaces were shut down, other people really had no choice. They had to work. Right. And society would not go on without them. And so they were sort of given a permission slip to go and do the work. One thing that has really bothered me, and I'm not asking you to get into the politics of vaccines and mandates and all of that. I was very pro-vaccine, not pro-mandate personally. Mm -hmm. And I did get vaccinated myself. Watching some of the people who were celebrated as essential for a while, Mm -hmm. nurses, first responders, that sort of thing, then months later lose their jobs because (laughs) of choices that they were making about putting something in their body or not. And then having them come out and, and speak at public meetings, give interviews saying everyone was cheering and I had to show up. I had a mask and nothing else. There was no vaccine available. Everyone was, oh, you're such a hero. And now I am out of work. I can't feed my family doing what I do because of these rules. That really bothered me. And I think it bothered a lot of Americans, regardless of politics. I think you're right, you know, because I think in both directions, there was an overcorrection, right? If you deem someone essential, If you point to somebody and say, guess what, you're essential because you have no choice but to go do your work, okay, that might very well be how the table is set. But when somebody does something because they don't have a choice, you have a different situation than when somebody chooses to do a difficult thing. So in a way, we have to be careful the way we celebrate essentiality because if we do it at a glance in some one-dimensional way – then we robbed the worker of the choice that he or she made in the first place. It's kind of like initiative, right? Initiative is the thing we don't talk a lot about anymore. But um, I think you – I might be conflating things, but there's a famous essay called A Message to Garcia that was out years ago. And it, uh, it, it basically told the story of a guy named Rowan who was a lieutenant who was charged with um, delivering a message to a – to a rebel leader in Cuba during the War of 1812. And uh, it just tells the story of the, 
of Rowan, who takes the message and says, you got it. I'll do it. This is during the McKinley administration. He doesn't ask, where is Garcia in the vast reaches? He doesn't ask, how am I going to get to Cuba? He doesn't do anything. He just does it. He just takes the initiative and he does a thing. We don't celebrate that as much as we used to, in my view. And as a result, we we don't see a ton of initiative in the workplace. And that's a kind of a clumsy way of saying that as we come out of the lockdowns and as we look forward, the thing that's going to be most valuable, in my view, to employers and as well to, to entrepreneurs is initiative. It's not just a question of being essential in a larger idea or a, or a larger palette. It's a question of being able to see an opportunity, take the initiative and build something new. We have national elections tomorrow. And we're having an interesting conversation about work. When you look at the economy, when you look at the buying power of the U.S. dollar, inflation, all this stuff, a lot of the things that you spend quite a lot of time thinking about and talking to people about are front and center in this election. I know you'll sometimes get political. You'll occasionally endorse candidates. Feel free to be as or as not political as you would like in this conversation. One thing that has struck me, though, Watching some of the commentary, some of the analysis from certain quarters of the media in particular, there are folks who seem angry and frustrated that Americans are focused on things that they feel shouldn't be focused on. They're Mm -hmm. like, you know, democracy is at stake. Let's talk about you name it, abortion or whatever. They're upset that Americans aren't sharing their priorities. (laughs) And they're almost like, you know, looking down their nose at these weird, unwashed people who are concerned about – whether they can feed their family, what heating their home is going to cost this winter, these immediate concerns that working people everywhere are, you know, it's it's front of mind for all of them. And you have sort of this ivory tower elite media attitude among some saying, well, get over all that stuff. There's more important stuff at stake on Tuesday, tomorrow. When you hear that, I wonder what you think. Well, I get <laughs> – the good news is there's no shortage of things to freak out about and worry about, right? I mean, there's true. <laughs> there, there's so much to ponder and there's so much that, you know, engenders legitimate concern that we actually are reduced to arguing over where the bigger fire is. Like, what's the bigger problem? Well, we're going to have to concentrate on a lot of different things at the same time. And I've got my own biases. You know, personally, I... I think 7 million able-bodied men between the ages of 25 and 54 who have affirmatively elected not only to not work but to not even look for work anymore. I think that's one of the most alarming things going on in the country. And like everything else, it gets politicized if you really drill down on that and ask people on the left or the right why they think it is that 7 million able-bodied men have punched out. You'll wind up with some kind of a polemic and you'll hear stories about you know, rapacious greed on the left and wanton laziness from the right. But in the end, that's a that's a giant metric that impacts virtually everything. It goes back to initiative. It also goes back to that which is essential. We're still looking at the unemployment rate like it it is some all-determining barometer of what's going on. That That's really a, an artifact, as I understand it, of the Depression and the way we used to think about the economy. Right. We used to say, well, you got 10 million unemployed people. The problem is you got 10 million too few jobs. But right now we got 11 million jobs and many, many millions of people who are either unskilled for those jobs or unwilling to go after them. And so something else is happening in the country. And I I personally don't think that's political. I think that 
that that's something else. I don't know entirely what it is, but I hope in some small way the kinds of shows that I work on can at least get people thinking about it and looking at it and talking about it. Because honestly, I don't, I don't hear a lot of candidates talking about that. I, I, don't, I can't think of anyone. No, neither can I. Right. They're talking about related issues, but mm-hmm. maybe not specifically what you just raised. Lastly, Mike Rowe, I want to ask you about the energy sector. And I know that you've done a lot of work with guys who make a living and gals in that realm. And President Biden, just in the last couple of days, has said a few things about shutting down coal factories and then no more drilling. There was a guy heckling him. He said, no more drilling, no more drilling. The White House for the last six months to a year has been arguing, oh, no, that's not really our position. He campaigned on that, but that's not really what we believe. It's just these greedy companies not doing what they should do and Putin and all this other stuff. We're, we're totally for energy. And the president comes out right mm-hmm. before the election in consecutive days and sort of blows up the argument saying, I think what he really believes. When you look at the issue of energy related to the election or not, what do you see in this country? What are your thoughts on that question? Well, the first thing is how can how can anyone interpret what the president has said other than just look to the words the president used? Right. I mean, why are we even having a conversation about what we think he meant? Why would we listen to anybody who wants us to 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 better understand what what he intended? Where does the buck stop? These are the words. I'm going to give him every benefit of the doubt and assumed he meant every single thing that he said. Okay. So so that's And that. they align with his policies too. So it's sort of like there it is. Right. Because look, if if that's not the case, then we have no idea where the words, the policies, and the ideas are are coming from. And that's just a whole different conversation. So it's like, okay, take the man at his word. This is what he said. My feeling is you've got you've got a lot of people in the industry uh, who take that very, very hard, who are working uh, in oil, gas, and coal to this day. I mean, we are still reliant on all three of those things in a major way. But beyond and that— And will be for a while. I mean, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but the only way that— it makes sense to, in my view, say what he just said is if you really and truly believe the world is in fact coming to an end in 12 years, as a lot of elected officials have maintained, as a lot of people are telling us. Now, if you truly believe that, then I understand the threat must feel existential, but this is also a global thing and we're talking about an atmosphere that we all share and nobody disputes the fact that India and China are both going to open at least one coal-fired plant every week for the next 30 years, for the next 30 years. No one disputes the fact that 3 billion other people who share the same atmosphere are relying on two sources of energy for their entire deal, and that's wood and dung. 3 billion people are burning wood and dung. They need to get out of that world, which really is doing a whole different level of harm, to the environment and get to coal, oil, and natural gas. And then one day, if there's any sanity in any of this conversation, we'll be talking candidly about nuclear. Because, again, no crystal ball, but how in the world are you going to get billions of people out of poverty if you don't look at the hierarchy of energy and put them on some sort of ladder to something better? I really wish more people in positions of power in this country listened to and thought like Mike Rowe, my guest. 
for reasons that I think are self-evident if you just listen to our conversation. I encourage you to watch How America Works on Fox Business Network every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Great show. Mike's podcast is The Way I Heard It. You can also check out MicroWorks Foundation if you're interested. Mike, great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Anytime, Guy. I appreciate it. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this break. Guy Benson will be right back. We're back on the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. So last week, Wyatt discovered, as did I, that producer Christine lives in a very important swing district in New Jersey. And her vote is going to matter a lot. Well, tomorrow, if she votes on Election Day, but Wyatt was so alarmed at the possibility of Christine missing Election Day that he was lobbying her hard on the air and off the air to vote early. He was willing to go and drive and pick her up and drive her to the local early voting location, which happened to be a senior center, as it turns out. And I saw the text over the weekend. He can come pick her up, you know, maybe help her with her hover round and get in there and everything and vote. Wyatt was very proactive about this. And Christine, did it work? Did you vote early? Of course it did not work. Did you really think I was going to go vote early? I mean, I thought it was possible. No, no, it was not possible. So the voting tomorrow. Are you sure? I will. I will. I'm going to take Megan. Wyatt was threatening on the call today to start texting and calling you as soon as he wakes up, like 4 a.m. Eastern. Although on election day, it's even earlier. He probably gets up at 2.30 a.m. I, I don't, I'm not sure he goes to sleep He might tonight. not sleep. He might not sleep. And he'll just start pinging you constantly to make sure that you're getting to your polling place with a plan to vote Wyatt, are you confident she's actually going to do this tomorrow? Um, I'm optimistic. I'm not – I wouldn't say confident per se, but I, I'm I'm setting my alarms and there will be text messages early in the morning. And I might even do it in our group chat just so she is shamed to make sure she is doing it and there's accountability. And I also need confirmation from Megan that this has happened. Okay, yeah, because we need a reliable source on this. And Megan is that. When have I ever – Felt shame. Just want to know. Mm. She makes a point. Vote tomorrow. It matters. That's for Christine. That's for everyone. The Guy Benson Show back after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. We are back. It's the happy hour. Thank you very much for joining us here. Earlier in today's show, in fact, at the very top of the program, we welcomed in studio here in New York, a rare treat, Brit Hume with us in person, which was a lot of fun. Of course, we were talking about his thoughts leading into tomorrow's elections. Here is part of that analysis from Fox News senior political analyst, Brit Hume. What is your overall instinct about what's going to happen tomorrow? Well, I would say that the fundamentals that you just cited that you know, form the landscape are about as unfavorable for an incumbent party uh, and president as I can remember. However, there's an issue for this pertains to the Senate, which is what everybody's worried about. The House seems almost certain to go Republican by either a large margin or a smaller one. The Senate is up uh, for grabs, it seems. If you believe the polling, it's a whole series of close races will decide it. So why why do we care so much, and why and why is it why is you know why is a big Republican year why aren't why isn't the Senate guaranteed? It's because 
this is something we've known all along, but sometimes gets lost. 21 Republican seats are being defended tomorrow. 14 Democratic seats. So the opportunities for Republican pickups, of which they need a few to get control, are fewer. And on top of that is the fact that some of the Republican nominees, several of them chosen by Donald Trump, endorsed by Donald Trump, and backed by Donald Trump, uh, don't look to be as strong a candidate as the ones they were running against. So they may well win. You know, they're not terrible. But the races are closer than you would think they would be in a year like this. So it's it's it appears to be out there still. We don't know. Yeah, I'm definitely a nerd when it comes to Senate races in particular. I think that they have outsized importance just because people elected serve for six years. Composition of the Senate matters in terms of a whole lot of things, including, you know, the Democrats are maybe a vote, two votes, three votes away from doing some pretty radical stuff in the Senate. And, of course, control of committees, all of that matters a lot. If the Republicans have the House, which I think the conventional wisdom suggests that they will for the next couple of years, that stops for the most part the Biden legislative agenda, but not judges and other things. Who controls the Senate could really shift the way the back end of the Biden administration looks. Yeah, it does. And, and you know, it's not just judges, Guy. You know, it's administrative appointments. Right. It's regulatory body appointments and all those things that – that if the Republicans control the place, they might be able to get Biden to make less radical nominations or, or, or more moderate nominations. Um, so it does matter to beat hell about the Senate. And we found out in no uncertain terms after 2020 when those two Georgia Senate races were lost to the Democrats that would have given the Republicans a majority, just how much it matters whether you have both houses of Congress. And and then came $1.9 trillion in spending added on to all the millions and billions that had already been spent on COVID relief. That manifestly added to the inflationary pressure that has given us the situation we have now. That's just one example of how much it matters, who controls. Yeah, and it's an undeniable fact, right? Those trillions do not get spent if the Republicans don't get swept in those Georgia specials. And not only that, everything I'm reading tells me that a lot of that money that was funneled out to people during COVID is still in their pockets, awaiting to be spent. Spending remains pretty vigorous, pretty strong. The Fed's trying to cool the economy down to curb the inflation. It's having trouble doing so, precisely because people are still flush. Um, and, you know, it's hard to get people to work. You see this everywhere. Jobs open everywhere. This is a problem. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I'll indulge it for just one more moment because I think it's important to remember you and I just marinate in this stuff constantly. So we know But a lot of folks maybe forget or it's been a while since they were in civics class or maybe they were never in civics class. The whole House of Representatives is up every two years, right. every single time. Only one-third of the Senate is up every two years. Correct. So the current class, as you noted, the map is more challenging for the Republicans. Bear with me. Fast forward two years. The 2024 Senate class, the one-third of the Senate up next time, that map looks really tough for the Democrats and right. really favorable for the Republicans. That's why I think these midterms actually matter even more, because if the Republicans can make serious gains this cycle, then in a presidential year with a very favorable map two years from now, then things start getting pretty interesting. I feel like maybe some Democrats might be shifting their positions on things like the filibuster awfully soon. Yeah, some of them might even shift parties. (laughs) Well, that's another interesting one, right? If the Republicans win the majority back and a certain West Virginia Democrat is looking at maybe political extinction in two years, maybe he starts to look across the aisle and, and start to wonder, That assumes, though, that 
what the prognosticators and the experts are saying is broadly correct about the cycle. It's hard to discount the national polling, this race-by-race polling, the fundamentals. But, you know, the warning that I keep offering to Republican voters or conservatives, Britt, is even though you would think something of a red wave is starting to crest and we're going to see it crash down tomorrow, that doesn't happen by accident. People actually have to go and do the voting. They can't just say, "Okay, it's in the bag. Turnout is going to be enormous. Democrats have built blue wall advantages in a number of important states with this early voting. It's going to take big, big red turnout tomorrow to overcome it. I think it's totally doable, but not if people think it's over. Yeah, and looking ahead, when when Biden's presidency turned out to be more leftist than anybody might have imagined, although he talked about being the most progressive at times, most people thought he'd be the same old Biden we knew in the Senate, who was basically a guy who went with the whatever his party was doing, and he was willing to work with the other side, and he was not the kind of president we now have. And I thought to myself, this midterm is going to be people's first opportunity to register their objections to what they see. The Afghanistan withdrawal started it, the decline in public's confidence in him after that, the arrival of inflation with a, you know, with a, real, with a really tough blow to people, uh, the condition of the economy. Generally, people think it's in recession already. Um, the lawlessness in the streets, the lawlessness at the border, these are all things that are the stuff of a wave. Um, but remember, there still are more Democrats than Republicans in America And so everything, as you suggest, depends on who turns out. Turn out and where the independents go. And the independents, again, the polling suggests that they are not enamored of this president or his party. And usually under these circumstances, those unaffiliated late deciders break one way, and it's usually not the way the Democrats are hoping for this year. But nothing can be taken to the bank until it's over. And that's like I keep hammering away. I do want to ask you this, though, since you brought up President Biden and – I think the the face of his pregnant uh, of his presidency is going to have to change starting in a few days through no choice of his own. The voters are going to force a new era in his presidency where he won't have democratic control of of everything anymore. My full interview with Brit Hume available online guybensonshow.com also part of the podcast the whole show every day for free on demand when the show is over guybensonshow.com foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, when we come back, a special guest, a friend of the program, we will welcome her for the home stretch when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on Election Day Eve on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast. No charge shortly after the show is over. Set your DVRs or stay up tonight with us on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be on the panel. That's always a party. We will see you there. Well, usually in our home stretch, it's just our team talking about nonsense. Whether you like it or not, it's what we do. Very occasionally, we will bring in a guest, an outside guest, and in this case, it's a friend of the program. Janice Dean, senior meteorologist at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author. She also has a forthcoming book due out in January called I Am the Storm, host of the Janice Dean podcast as well. She is our guest, our last guest on election eve. 
Janice, welcome back to the show. Oh my gosh, I love talking about nonsense. You know that. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna talk about something more important here just to start and something a little bit more serious. I know there are communities in Florida still rebuilding and will be for quite some time from Hurricane Ian. Now there's this storm that they're naming Nicole heading toward Florida that could potentially become a hurricane. What can you tell us about Nicole? So, yes, uh, the National Hurricane Center does have Nicole as a hurricane making landfall somewhere along the east coast of Florida. So we're thinking Wednesday night into Thursday, but we're going to start to feel the impacts of the storm you know, Tuesday uh, in Florida. And I'm concerned, obviously, because this is going to potentially be a hurricane. It's going to bring heavy rain and wind and impacts to areas that were affected by Ian, guys. So that's my concern because the storm trajectory has it coming across the peninsula and then into the Gulf of Mexico side, coming up towards the panhandle, and then into the southeast. So, you know, even though this is a minimal hurricane, it's still going to cause a lot of problems. And Florida has, you know, seen one of the worst hurricanes that's ever impacted their state in the history of the state. So, yeah, I'm, I am concerned. And, you know, even though we were watching this on Friday, I remember pointing it out on Fox and Friends, the little swirl in the Atlantic and some of the early forecast models. And I told people to keep attention, you know, pay attention. You know, the fact that it became a tropical storm this morning and then now is potentially a hurricane within 48 hours and we have hurricane watches up and down the coast, that's concerning. Yeah, we will definitely want to keep an eye on that. Meanwhile, because a lot of people are heading out to the polls tomorrow, a lot of folks vote on Election Day. I think Republicans in particular, if you look at the data, they are more inclined to vote on the day itself. I know for years people would talk about, oh, what are the forecasts going to look like in certain areas that are Democratic-heavy areas or Republican-heavy areas? And could bad weather maybe depress turnout just enough to help so-and-so or tip a race one way or another? I know it's an awfully difficult question to ask. What does the weather look like in America tomorrow? But are there a few things that you're at least keeping your eye on? For example, I saw that there might be some snow, for example, in parts of Nevada, where big turnout for Republicans is going to be very important in that state. What can you tell us, just like a little hopscotch around the country, of what you're at least looking at weather-wise? I think it's really important. Weather is important on big election uh, nights and big election days, uh, midterms being no exception to the rule. And certainly we could have some impacts in the West. You mentioned Nevada. That's the most concerning area for a lot of heavy rain and snow in the mountains, including Las Vegas. Uh, We've got Henderson in that area, uh, Clark County, Nevada, and Washoe County, Nevada. So that area actually could see some rain and higher elevation snow, including the Reno and Carson City area. So that's really the focus of the worst of the of the weather. You know, the West Coast is kind of a mess. We've got coastal rain uh, in California. That's beneficial, but it also is going to cause some flooding. I've actually had some friends in California text me today saying, is this going to be as bad as they're forecasting? And certainly we're going to get heavy rainfall, gusty winds, and then the higher elevation snow. But when you talk about, you know, impacting the midterms, I am concerned with Nevada. Yeah, I mean, because if Republicans need this big number on the Election Day turnout, 
and they need to do well up in Washoe County that you were just talking about at Washoe County, that if there's snow on the ground or it's snowing outside, you know, that is something to keep an eye on. I saw Adam Laxalt, the Republican nominee out there saying, we know our folks are going to come out and vote no matter what. And that is certainly the hope of Nevada Republicans. And we'll see if Mother Nature throws a curveball into that race. I just encourage people to make a plan to vote and go ahead and vote if they haven't done so already. Be safe, be smart about it, but if you're going to vote on Election Day, if that's your choice, if that's what you want to do, then you can't be deterred by some weather. And that's why we wanted to bring Janice Dean on just to talk about what she's seeing across the map for tomorrow on this very important Tuesday. Janice, I want to close with, I don't want to call it nonsense per se, but something a little bit lighter. I want to check in on how things are going with Lola, your Bedlington Terrier, who is all over my social media feed, and I love it so much. In fact, she now looks so much like my dog, Roy, that when I see your post pop up on Twitter or Instagram, for a second I assume it's Adam posting a photo of our dog. And in fact, it is Lola. She is now like the full Bedlington color. Yes. I mean, she has a little bit of gray still in her guy, but her face is now white. And what people don't realize about this breed uh, is they start out black. They yeah. are black dogs as puppies, and then they turn gray, and then they turn all white. It's quite incredible. Um, you know, my husband has all white hair, so I like to, you know, look at them both and say <laughs> that, you know, she's she's just becoming my husband. My husband is becoming Lola. Um, uh, but, you know, it's it, she is a joy guy. I mean, I feel so grateful to you and Adam to for introducing us to this incredible breed. She brings so much life and love into our house. Um, you know, really, I I don't even remember what it was like before Lola. She is she is our world. And the little curl up into a little powdered donut that they do. Donut. It's- Yep, the cutest thing ever. I have to ask you, because she's a puppy and there are a lot to handle, is the behavior situation okay? And are your sons, who were huge proponents of getting Lola, are they pulling their weight in terms of the chores and and dog-related stuff, or is that all kind of landing on mom? Well, listen, we take the brunt of, you know, taking Lola out. I, You know, I am truly a dog owner. I noticed this this morning, Guy, when I was going through my pockets, I have, like, poopy bags uh-huh. in my every single pocket <laughs> yep. but um you know she's so well behaved we've you know she we've crate trained her uh and she loves her crate it's her safe space um it's where she sleeps at night it's where you know if we're out we put her in a, a safe place um she's you know she's she's funny she's clownish you know she has these moments where she has the zoomies and she runs around the house yep. which we love um <laughs> But she's just she's a really good dog. We've been really blessed. Um, she has a good temperament. She loves other dogs. I mean, she'll just sit on our lawn and if she sees another dog, she will, you know, just want to run over and kiss and love on them. And she loves people. I mean, she really is a perfect dog. I know that you say Roy is a perfect dog. We might have to have like a perfect dog uh, show. Yeah, we'll have a perfect dog off, a Bedlington off, perhaps, and I'm all for it. They do have to meet at some point because they're long-lost cousins at the very least, and I just love to talk about it on and off the air because it's just – it's so much 
happiness and so much joy and such a bright spot in our lives and I know in your lives as well. And we just are so grateful, Janice, that you made some time for us here today. Huge day in the country tomorrow. Janice Dean, senior meteorologist at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author. Her latest book, I Am the Storm, comes out early next year, January 2023. Check out her podcast, The Janice Dean Podcast at Fox News Podcast. You're just a a very busy person, but not too busy for Lola, and we love it. Janice, have a great night. Good luck. I know you're watching these elections very closely tomorrow and give an extra scritch to Lola for us. Oh, you too. Uh, love to you and Adam and uh, to your beautiful Bedlington as well, Roy. Oh, thank you, Janice. Much love. And with that, we are out of time. Back here tomorrow for the Election Day edition of The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. In the meantime, tune in to Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Can't wait for that. Have a great evening. Thank you for listening. It's The Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.